the church has so many functions that could be communicated that we could not adequately cover it in a short time that we have this morning. However, there are some priorities that are of utmost importance. And the Lord Jesus Christ gave marching orders to the apostles after his resurrection. And these marching orders were to be conveyed and fulfilled in and through his church. It's a very basic passage of scripture. We know it as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, let's start reading, please, in verse 16. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a great passage of Scripture. And what makes this commission great is the authority of the Lord Jesus in verse 18 and the promised presence of the Lord Jesus at the end of verse 20, what we do in the process of fulfilling the marching orders of the church is not done of our own accord, of our own authority, and comforted by ourselves. Instead, we go with the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who rules heaven and earth, and we go with him declaring him, demonstrating him, and empowered by him. This is why the Great Commission is the Great Commission and not just a good commission. The power and presence of the one whom we preach, the Lord Jesus Christ, makes the Great Commission great. You probably know that there is only one main command in this section, verses 19 and 20 though it's recorded in such a way as to look like there's more than one command. The one command in this text is make disciples of all the nations. I want for us to notice that he did not say make everyone pray a particular prayer or make sure everyone comes forward at an invitation at the end of a revival meeting. The Great Commission is to make disciples disciples. There's more here than just getting someone to make a decision to believe what you believe. A disciple at the very heart is a learner, or maybe better stated, a follower, a follower. And so we have to ask the question, and I think it must be answered. We must answer this question correctly to follow these marching orders correctly. Whose disciples are these folks supposed to be? And here is where we sometimes can go astray. I want to make disciples that look and act and speak like me. Or I want to make disciples that look and act and speak like us. As if you're a disciple of the church or the disciple of a particular person. Well, 
The truth of the matter is, we are to be disciples of a particular person. You know who, who that person is? The Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one whom we follow. We can follow him only in accordance with what he has revealed. We can only properly follow him, only in accordance with what he's revealed. Our goal is to point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. No one, no one, no one will want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ until they have been introduced to Jesus Christ. That is our first marching order, to introduce people to Jesus Christ by our words and by our lives. So we introduce people to God-made flesh. This, this blows our minds, doesn't it? To think about God residing in heaven gloriously, joyfully, unimpeded by anything, only and always surrounded by worshipers, always and only in the perfect temperature, never longing for anything. And that God took on human flesh and needed a mother to feed, clothe, diaper him. How can this be that the one that spoke the worlds into existence with the breath of his mouth, the one who commanded the, the oceans in place that holds every star in place, that causes the planets to rightly orbit around the sun, the one who, with the power of his word, created everything, became so dependent that he would have died without a human mother. You believe that he would have died without a human mother, right? Yes, he's God. God in the flesh. We saw, in our understanding of scripture, this God-man die, didn't we? His life could be snuffed out. Satan knew it, which is why he had Herod executing children all over the region. He humbled himself. God made flesh. We share with people that this Jesus willingly became man to provide us at least these two essential graces. Complete, complete. Did I say it yet? Complete forgiveness of sin. And perfect righteousness for our salvation. God became flesh to take our sins away permanently and to give to us a standard of righteousness that is required to enter into an eternal habitat with God. This is what Jesus did. In other words, Jesus Christ came to rescue us from our sin and to restore us to a right standing before God. When a person truly understands their condition as a sinner and the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ, there will be no hesitation to become a learner or follower of him. When we understand our condition as a sinner, enemies of God because of our sin, we have removed ourselves from a right standing with God. We have placed ourselves up against God by our sin. When we recognize our condition as sinners separate from God and the redemption that God in the flesh has made 
available to us a rescue from my rebellion, a rescue from my sin, a restoration to a position of a right standing with God so that I can spend eternity with Him. When we understand what the offer of salvation is through Jesus Christ, there would be no hesitation to say, I will follow Him all the days of my life. A hesitation to follow Jesus Christ all the days of our lives is a clear sign that I do not know him, that I do not understand what he offers and what he provides. What Jesus communicates to his disciples in this passage gives several ingredients of the discipleship process. First of all, we want to notice, in order to make disciples, there have got to be a group of disciples that share the gospel, which is how verse 19 starts. Go, therefore. Go is not a command, though it carries the weight of a command. It's going, going, therefore. In order to make disciples, I have to be going. So it carries the weight of a command, but it is not a command. It's a way unto making disciples. Making disciples of all the nations, that is the mission. Those are the marching orders. But in order to make disciples, I must be going now. So believers, disciples, must share the gospel. Go therefore. What is the therefore in that place? It's, it's because Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so I don't have to fear as I go forth. Regardless of the climate, regardless of the governmental structure, Regardless of the culture around me, I don't have to sit back in fear. Regardless of whether people like what I have to say or hate what I have to say, the circumstance is exactly the same because I know the one who is authoritative in the next life, in this life, in the heavens, and on the earth. Go, therefore. And, and we have other passages of Scripture. We're going to take a look briefly at a couple, please. Acts chapter 1, you'll remember. After the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. We're familiar with that, Joseph of Arimathea. He was there for parts of three days. And that Sunday came, the stone was rolled away. The Lord Jesus Christ was raised by the Father, was raised by the Spirit, and he rose himself. From the grave, he arose from the grave himself. It's incredible, the Godhead involved in every element of everything the Lord Jesus did. He was raised from the dead. He, you'll remember, spent 40 days uh, dealing with people and making himself known by many infallible proofs. And then the end of that time of his ministry, post-resurrection, that portion came to an end. And they were all gathered together here in Acts chapter 1. Look what it says, beginning in verse 6. So when they came together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Don't worry about those things. I have something I want to tell you, though. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be, will be, not Go do this. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We know how the book of Acts unfolds. 
they didn't really take that you will be my witnesses in these areas too seriously at the beginning, did they? They just hung out in Jerusalem. It was a comfy home. They liked it there. This is, it, it's a happening place. Look at what God's doing here. But God said you will be witnesses in these other locations. And so God, of his own authority, and his, of his own accord, <laughs> ensured that they spread out. He did that through many difficulties. But as they went, what were they? Witnesses. Why? The Spirit of God was in them. The Spirit was testifying to them, first of all, that they are children of God, Romans 8 and Galatians 4. But secondly, the Spirit was testifying to them and through them of the, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you see the, the story of the book of Acts unfold, you see person after person in the thousands coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Why? Because the authority of Christ was in them and with them and accomplishing his will. Take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This testimony of the church of Thessalonica is, is one of the greatest testimonies that I can imagine a church receiving. Dear Lord, make us like this, this type of church. Beginning in verse 6, And you, church, became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And how you have turned to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God. What a testimony these people have. God so ordered and God so chose to redeem a people for himself to empower them with the Spirit and the Word and examples, to then be examples with the Word and the Gospel and the Spirit, to demonstrate to a, a group of believers that were around them and to an onlooking world that Jesus Christ is the only way to be right before God. Jesus Christ is the only way to have an inheritance with God forever. This is the testimony they had. Disciples must evangelize. They cannot, they cannot keep the gospel to themselves. It is so emphatic in the life of people that know Jesus, and in particular people, even more so, think about the testimony of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. Listen to what he says. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity, necessity, necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me, woe to me, if I do not preach the gospel. That's a particular person, right? This is Paul. I don't know how the Lord moves in your life. 
maybe you are not the number one in a list of a thousand evangelists. This passage doesn't tell you that you have to be, but it shows you a glimpse of what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You have received, if you have, the forgiveness of your sin, which has remedied an eternal debt. You have received as a grace gift the righteous standard of Christ so that you're now, if you have received Christ, you are now perfect in the eyes of God. You have a standing with God and it's an eternal standing. How can you keep your mouth shut? How can we keep our mouths shut? Disciples must, must share the gospel. Secondly, back in Matthew chapter 28, just as important, just as important, disciples must be baptized. Disciples must be baptized. This is not an option. The way to making disciples is number one, by going. Number two, by baptizing. Disciples must be baptized. Look what it says again in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, this is great, in the name, one name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Not names, plural, the name. Because our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the glorious precious Spirit of God are one, and they're together, they're united, and when we proclaim the glory of Jesus Christ, we're proclaiming the glory of the triune God, which is why we can rightly say, all I have is Christ, and do no offense, no offense to our triune God. We sang earlier, and I forget which song it was, it was talking about proclaiming, all I have is Jesus. All I want is Jesus. That does no offense to the Godhead because they have one name. They're united together. And when we baptize, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What does baptism accomplish? Baptism doesn't save. Baptism can't save. God never tells us, be baptized so that you will be saved. Baptism is a public demonstration, listen carefully, a public demonstration of a spiritual regeneration. Regeneration. That means we've received spiritual life. Remember in Ephesians 2, you were what? Dead. How do you fix dead? Well, I hope there's a good medicine. I hope there's a really splendid machine. Dead's dead. When someone is truly dead, body and soul are separate. There have been declarations of death, not the same as the body being separated from the spirit and soul. Heart stop? Yes. Brain stop? Me? Yes. Lung stop? Yes. Death, true death, is the separation of the body from the soul and spirit. That's death. Once that takes place, the truth, like the final kind of death, there's no regeneration there. You can't bring it back. That's the condition of our spiritual life from birth. Death. 
It's not by works of righteousness, Titus says in Titus 3.5, which we have done. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of water and regeneration or renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Ephesians 2 passage, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He stays in that for several verses until we get to verse 4. And he says, but God, because of the great love with which he loved us, he's made us alive. God made us alive. We didn't. We can't. We got nothing to offer to bring that to pass. God has to do it. This happens when a person has their eyes illumined, opened. The light bulb goes on. Their spirit is illumined unto what Jesus Christ has done in their stead. God gives life and imparts faith. And that faith is counted as what? Righteousness. Remember that in Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Did you know Hebrews eleven six 6 has something to say about this? Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God makes us alive by his spirit and the truth of the gospel and we embrace Christ as our savior and so we've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life. This takes place inside. Baptism baptism is a public declaration demonstration. It's, it's the spiritual regeneration made visible. It does not produce spiritual regeneration. It's the spiritual regeneration made public declared, visual, without that public declaration. The process of discipleship is not complete. That doesn't mean someone's not saved. But the process of discipleship is not complete. He makes it very clear. Make disciples by going and by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to turn to Romans chapter 6 right now, but in Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, it talks about a spiritual baptism that takes place. And in that, we visibly demonstrate, when we, when we are actually water baptized, we visibly demonstrate what happened to us through the regenerating work of God the Holy Spirit. Baptism does not save a person. Baptism cannot save a person. Baptism demonstrates visually the proclamation of the one being baptized. Yes, a person can, can go to heaven without being baptized. Yes, but this is not the intention of God. It's not the intention of God. Yes, the thief on the cross is in heaven and he was not baptized. But this is the exception and not the rule. You, you gather this. People want to cling to those types of things well, you're telling me to be baptized, I'm going to do this. And salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. You're right. You're right. Salvation is through grace, by faith, in Christ. That's it. That's the, that's, that's the total plan of salvation, right? But that's not the end of discipleship. Discipleship mandates following the Lord in baptism. It mandates that it is not an option. Part of the process of discipleship is participation in baptism. We're still in Matthew 28. Disciples also, in addition to sharing the gospel and being baptized, disciples must be taught. Disciples must be taught. Look what it says in verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. 
We have a similar passage. It's not, it's not parallel, but it has similar concepts in it in, in Galatians chapter 6. As, as Paul's winding down his communication, he says this. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. The word taught and teaches is the Greek term katakeo. Katakeo. Can you hear catechism in there? Catechism is a strategic or systematic declaration, and that, that verbal element is, is inherent to the term catechism and katakeo. It's, there's a verbal element, so it's a systematic declaration of truth. In Galatians 6, he's saying the one that is hearing this verbal tradition, this systematic declaration of truth, ought to share with the one who is systematically declaring the truth. A person who comes to know Christ as Savior must also seek to be taught. Taught. By your own time in the Word, yes, but also in a more formal setting where we are hearing systematically the teaching of Scripture. The Bible says in Acts chapter 20 and verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That is a, that, that is a convicting passage for me as a pastor. 66 books, right? And, and there, there's, while the plain meaning of scripture is, is clear, right? We, 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 can, we can, anyone that is seeking to, to understand the basic ideas of scripture can understand it. Have you ever read some of it that you thought, I don't know what to do with that. That one's hard. This one's difficult. That comes up regularly too, right? And so the, the job of the church is to make sure that we're not only sticking to passages that we think are really great and, and we love. We love all of it because it's the whole counsel of God. And so we have to make sure we're covering from Genesis to Revelation even when that prospect is daunting. Daunting. But so also it is for the disciple. You and I need to thirst after all of Scripture. We don't have time again to go there, but in Ephesians chapter 4... We have a, a very clear demonstration of this. God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints to do the work of the ministry until we reach the full stature of the fullness of Christ. I, I paraphrase verse 13. Verse 14, that we're no longer children tossed to and from, back and forth, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speak the truth in love. Why? So you can grow up into Christ, who is the head. This is your job, folks. This is my job. To both teach and to be taught. Disciples, real disciples, must be learners, must be taught. Finally, back in Matthew 28, Disciples must walk in accordance with Jesus' instructions. Look what it says again in verse 20. Teaching them to observe, to observe all that I have commanded you. The concept of observing is to hear and to keep, to take heed and to follow. And it reminds us of what God says through Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, why don't we turn there? Philippians chapter 2, this will be our last passage for the morning. Beginning in verse 12. In Philippians 2.12, the Bible says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen carefully to what verse 13 says. For it is God who works in you. Many times that's what I will focus in on when I read this passage. But I have a different emphasis right now because it is in accord with Jesus' instruction in Matthew 28. It is God who works in you both to will and to what? Work. And in another version, rightly so, do. To will and to do of his good pleasure. The word there means to to operate, to act, to accomplish something. God works in us to will, have a willing mindset, and to accomplish, to work out his good pleasure. Where would I find out what pleases God? Well, I think it's very easy. God wrote one book. He didn't write God calling, and he didn't write Jesus calling. He didn't write your best life now. He didn't even write books that we like. He didn't write the gospel according to Jesus or the gospel according to Paul. He didn't write the book that we're studying, a a number of us, devoted to God. God wrote one book. I have it. Imagine that. God wrote a book, and I can read it. And so can you. And it tells us what's right. And it tells us what pleases God. Imagine that. That is a grace gift. That's a precious treasure before us. God, how, I just want to know how to please you. Tell me. I'm waiting. Open the sky. Send me a note. I did. Well, he did. he's not going to say that. But, but he did. He did send us a note. It's a long note. 66 portions of it, right? But one, one letter God has written to us, and we can know exactly what his intentions are. Listen, this is important to, to, to conclude. A disciple is not a disciple because he says a prayer. A disciple is one who follows. In order to demonstrate that one is truly a follower of Jesus Christ, he must first trust Jesus for salvation. Secondly, he must demonstrate that salvation through baptism. Thirdly, he must seek to understand the truths of the Bible. And fourth, he must seek to put into action the truths of the Bible. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you obeyed the command to be baptized? Have you been seeking the instructions of the Bible? Have you been seeking to live in obedience to the commands of Scripture? Do not, do not short-circuit the discipleship process. We have our orders to make disciples. Folks, I want to challenge you in my last conclusion of this conclusion. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've been born again by God's grace, and you have not been baptized, you are not You're not completing the discipleship process, but that can be resolved. And I want to give you the opportunity to resolve it. Um, When the church service is over, in about 20 minutes or so, I want you to come to me at the end of the service, please, and say, "I've I've been born again, if you have been, and I want to be baptized. I know that there are some here that already want to do this, which is preempted or prompted our discussion on this matter. 
I want to give you the opportunity. So if you've never been baptized after you've trusted Christ as your Savior, come to me after and say, I want to be baptized. I want to follow the Lord in this. I, I, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. You just haven't given me the opportunity to do this step. And I'll say, you're right, but we will resolve this. So come to me after the service, and we will, we will uh, start putting together a plan in place so that you can be baptized, declaring publicly that God has regenerated you spiritually. For the glory of God, we want to do this. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. I want to tell you that Jesus did enough to pay for your sin. And the one who comes to God, turning from their sin and coming to God through Christ, has their sin eternally removed. Eternally removed. And a necessary second piece is that the record of Jesus' righteousness is placed on your account so that you, when you stand before God, will not stand there saying, oh, I tried my best. Your best is not good enough, nor is mine. When you stand there, there'll be no questions needed because you'll be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Your, your records will be changed. So God is willing to take your sin away and give you Jesus' righteousness, which is everything you need to enter heaven. It's done. And what's left? You turning from your sin and turning to God and saying, God, I need this. I need what you've done. All who come to him, he brings in. None will be cast out. This, this, is, this is a work of God. Today, if, you've, if you sense that God is calling you to him, you need, you need the salvation, that means that God is opening your eyes. Do not reject what God is opening your eyes to. Today, deal with it. At the end of the service, in addition to writing this stuff down about who wants to be baptized, we can also spend some time looking at God's word, showing you how you can have eternal life, now and forever.